Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to have uh, a guest with me today, Dr. Paul Reville, a professor of educational policy at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's a founder of the Education Redesign Lab and a former uh, Secretary of Education for the state of Massachusetts. He's written a really interesting book that we're going to talk about today. It's called Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. I'm very, very happy to have Paul with us for today's show. Paul, welcome to Trending in Education. Mike, thank you for inviting me on the air with you. I'm glad to be here. The work you're doing, as I mentioned when we were prepping, you know, I just wanted to begin by saying thank you for your service. You're focusing on an area that I think many of us in, in education, educational policy, aren't necessarily comfortable talking about, and, and that's what the concept of, of poverty and how to help children uh, and families who are dealing with poverty on a day-to-day -day basis, help them fully engage in their educational life in the, the context of the school, but also in the broader community that really provides educational services and just life services. Can you talk a little bit about the notion of poverty and how it relates to the work in Broader, Bolder, Better? Sure. You know, the, the work described in this book is designed to be an antidote to the challenges associated with poverty that become impediments in the lives of children to taking full advantage of public education and public schooling. We've had ever since Horace Mann's time, Horace Mann was the first secretary of education in the country. He was also secretary of education here in Massachusetts. And uh, you know, his aspiration for public schools uh, they, was that they'd be the great equalizer, the great leveler in mm -hmm. society, that we'd have a common school. Everybody, irrespective of background, wealth, race, religion, gender, would come to a common school. And they'd um, get a common treatment. And then when they came out, it'd be a level playing field, equal opportunity, and talent and effort would rise to the top. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a great theory, and the radical concept of a common school was a big step forward for America. But the idea that schools would level the playing field never really worked out, if you look at the data over time. And in fact, worked out better earlier in the history of American public education than in more recent times. In more recent times, you really can't look anywhere, Mike, in educational statistics and not see a correlation between socioeconomic status and educational achievement and attainment. Mm -hmm. I call it an iron law correlation. It's a straight northeast line. The wealthier you are, you know, by, by virtue of the accident of birth, the more likely you are to achieve at high levels. Now, let's be clear and say this doesn't apply to any individual. Right. This is a statistic. The statistics undeniable. The evidence is there. So it doesn't mean that you're you know, particular demographic background is destiny for you as an individual. But as a group, we have this direct correlation. And if we want to build a system as we claim to want to build in our policy pronouncements, our policy aspirations, like no child left behind, every student succeeds, every child a winner, all means all, which is a mantra that I use all the time. We want to achieve all means all, then we cannot do that without looking at the impact of poverty and the kind of impediments through no fault of their own, mm -hmm. through no lacking capacity that students have that get in the way of them, you know, coming to school in the first place 
who are coming to school and being ready to learn when they get there. Mm -hmm. So we need to launch an all-out attack on those impediments to try and level the playing field with respect to opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. And we know that more than ever before in our society, social capital, what you inherit from birth, your norms, your networks, uh, and things of that nature, more than ever control your access to opportunity to learn, mm -hmm. which is what affects your capacity to develop the skill and knowledge, human capital, we call it, that you yep. sell on the open market. Right, right. Fortunately, for a long time, Mike, we've not wanted to talk about poverty in the mm -hmm. field of education. Ever since the Coleman Report 60 years ago, you know, people said, well, let's not talk about family background because we don't want to we don't want to sort of diminish the importance of schools. Coleman said nothing is more important in determining your outcome than where you're born. And that seemed to say, well, the 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 effort behind schooling isn't worth investing in. Educators were worried about that. Right, right. We have another group of thinkers who think that, you know, this is somehow stereotyping or deficit modeling. Right. And again, we say to that, it's not, we're not talking about any individual or the capacity of any individual or group of people. We're talking about systemic circumstances. So if there are deficits, there are deficits in the system that happen to be unfairly distributed on the basis of, you know, your wealth and access to social capital. So we yep. need to do something about that. We also have educators who fully recognize the importance and the impact of poverty. They see it every day in their classrooms, mm -hmm. but they don't have the tools or the language or resources or the time to do anything about it. So they say, you know, I know it matters, but I can't control that. It's out of my domain. Right. So I'm just gonna focus on what I have to focus on and don't ask me to do anything else, which is totally fair. I don't think we solve these problems by virtue of just loading more responsibilities onto educators. Kids right. are in school 20% of their waking hours between kindergarten and grade 12. 80% is spent outside. We've gotta be more attentive to what happens outside and how we build conditions outside conditions of support and opportunity that make it possible for every kid to come to school every day ready to learn. Yeah, uh, lots of uh, interesting stuff that we could dig into there. I do think it's really interesting to put this in the, the context of a reframing of the, the educational learning ecosystem that that's necessary to uh, drive uh, successful outcomes and, and also address genuine problems where you know, it seems like, uh, if I'm reading you right, the, the frameworks that are out there, the, the alternatives that maybe we want to counter, are looking more at the child individually outside of his or her context, or thinking of the teacher in the classroom individually without a broader context, and leaving the accountability at that relatively narrow focus, as opposed to a much broader focus, which thinks about not just the individual student, the student's family, the teacher, but also the school, the community, the city, the community groups, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So like understanding that educational services and the educational context, that's the word that I keep coming back to, you know, context is king, how in many ways we've gotten the context wrong, perhaps since the the Coleman report that, that, that you're citing there. And then in some ways this is a pushback to kind of broaden that context to be more more community-based. Uh, could you yeah, talk no, about that's right. that? I, I guess I'd, I'd phrase it in a slightly different way, but the main idea I think you've captured in your, in your comments 
we have relied almost exclusively on the school system and the intervention of schooling to create equality of opportunity in our society. We've said, you know, we've got this vast and right now growing, hugely uh, disproportionate distribution of income and wealth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that's okay as long as we have public schools and public schools will make up the difference. Mm -hmm. And when they don't, since they don't have the capacity or the strength as an intervention to accomplish something as big and broad as that, we blame the schools and say, well, the schools are failing. We, it's not our fault. We put up a school system. We tried to reform it. But our contention is schools alone as currently constituted are not a strong enough intervention to overcome, on average, the disadvantages of poverty for large-scale populations. Mm -hmm. So the question is, it's really a question of strategy. Do we have a schools alone strategy? And that really has been at the core of our education reform efforts of the past 25, 30 years. You know, we had the Nation at Risk report in 1983, said that uh, if a foreign nation had done to ourselves, done to us what we've done to ourselves educationally, we consider it an act of war, mm -hmm. or we're about to be consumed by a rising tide of mediocrity, and basically said our human capital development system, AKA our school system, is not up to the demands of the 21st century. And we ought to fix the schools. And the, the basic underlying theory of action was Horace Mann's contention that school alone is enough to equalize opportunity is still accurate. It's just that the schools aren't doing a good enough job at doing that. And if we fix them, we'll be fine. Right. Our contention is, yes, there's a lot to be fixed in schools. There is such a thing as a good school and a poor school, and we can improve schools, and we spend a lot of money on schooling. And schooling is a lifesaver for many people in our society and a really important instrument of developing human capital. But by itself, schooling is too weak to overcome these other factors. And, and if you only look at the time element that I mentioned earlier, 20% of your waking hours in school, 80% of your waking hours, and all the rest of your sleeping time and residential time outside of school, it means that we've got to pay attention to that. So education reform, if we look at the core business of education being kind of a triangle with teacher, student, and curriculum, teacher, student, and content, you know, we've said for a long time, that's the essential central transaction in education. And so we ought to be thinking more uh, about instruction and how we improve instruction. So ed reform, we've spent a lot of time on teachers and teaching, a lot of time on standards, and content, and delivery systems with technology, and, and assessment, and all the rest of that, which has to do with content. But we've not done much of anything with respect to students. We've said students are kind of a given. Parents mm -hmm. send us the best students they have, and we just deal with them. Instead of saying, well, students are not sort of objectively neutral. They come to school from an ecosystem, and that determines whether they actually get there or not. We see most of our chronically underperforming schools and systems have huge attendance problems, yep. chronic attendance problems. People with, you know, more than missing more than 20% of the year on a routine basis, sometimes as many as 50 or 60% of the students. This is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. So, we know that the factors outside of school get in the way of kids coming to school. Some kids come to school, but they're laboring under toxic stress because yeah. they've got health problems. They've got mental health problems. They've got housing problems. They're inadequately nourished. 
Uh, they're not having clean air or clean water. They're, they have fears for their safety. And yeah. then we're, and we're concentrating. Those students are typically concentrated in the way in which we assign kids to schools. So you've got this concentrated poverty and the odds against that school system competing effectively with suburban school systems, which have affluent youngsters who come to school with basically wraparound support and service yeah. that they've had ever since the prenatal. It's just no low contendery. You can't, it's not really a fair competition. Yes, occasionally you get a school or a teacher or you know a child or a group of child who defy the odds, but our work is really about changing the system's odds in the first place right. so that more people have a reasonable hope of competing successfully and being prepared to be workers, citizens, and family heads in a 21st century world. Yeah, and you talk about uh, a holistic integrated student supports uh, cradle to career approach that includes services like health, mental health, nutrition, and family supports, as well as expanded access to opportunities such as early childhood education, after school activities, and summer enrichment programs. That's um, right. There's a lot in there. Can you put a little meat on the bone, flesh that out a little sure. more for us? Sure. Well, I, you know what, uh, our basic idea of a remedy. The design principle, and I had something called the Education Redesign Lab, as you mentioned, and it's about reconsidering how we design our systems, not just of schooling, but of child development and education. And what we envision is a cradle-to-career pipeline that, you know, that mimics in some respects what those of us who have privilege do for our own children, mm -hmm. which is wraparound supports and opportunities, caring that begins as early as the prenatal period, and it goes along through all the school years, higher education, and it went to where they're in their 20s and 30s, as far as I can see. We've, sure, sure. We're giving them those, again, those of us who have privilege, 360 degree, 365 day a year, mm -hmm. support and opportunity. And it turns out it makes a difference in terms of the performance and quote unquote success rate of students from that class is much higher on average than students coming from other classes by right. any indicator you want to look at, whether it's income or college completion or you know career trajectories, whatever it might be. So the question is, how do we build a public system that creates those supports and opportunities along that guideline starting in early childhood and moving through the, you know, the, the, the K-12 years and then into higher education and not just a, a ready access, high quality system of public education, but at the same time wrapped around it are the services and supports that, that people need. And so that's where we start getting into uh, prenatal care, we get into nutrition, we get into housing stability, we get into um, early childhood education, after school, summer learning, medical care, mental health services, you know, much clearer college and career guidance, early college pathways and opportunities for people to react and do internships and get out into the world of work. All these kinds of things that we know are ingredients that go into successfully developing children. And we know we're not gonna get all that stuff done at once because it's big and it's expensive. But our belief is this is really important work. It's best done at the local level. 
We ask mayors to lead this work in the nine cities, for example, that we're deeply involved in and to work closely with superintendents because after all, the hub of youth experience is the school system, but it involves a great many other partners contributing to this work. We've chosen mayors who share our belief that cities these days can't be successful unless the young people in the city are successful and they can't be successful if all you do to help young people is to provide an adequate school system. We need to do much more than that. And so we need to build out this pipeline and there are always gonna be gaps in the pipeline as any community does an assessment of the services and supports they offer young people, but they need to have a vision of where they're headed and then a plan to make imp incremental progress toward getting there. Yeah, great stuff. As I was preparing, I did watch uh, an interview of, of your co-author with uh, some educators in Virginia and the educator there, the teacher from a rural school in Virginia, was talking about how her white privilege growing up had her thinking of her children as only her children and not thinking of all the children in the school as really her children. And who are our children and whose responsibility is it to provide the right, the right support services, the right wraparound right. services, right. To, to all children. I, I like your all means all. That's why we keep coming back to that mantra. And, and that's our, you know, we, we the, the great myth of American education is that it's uh, excellent and equitable for all. Mm -hmm. But it, is, it doesn't actually work out that way. And when you look at the numbers, we have decades now, centuries really of, of, of results to show that that isn't working out. And that turns out, you know, the idea of all means all turns out to be a really important aspiration for the future of our economy and the future of our democracy. We've got enormous turbulence in our society right now, notably in our, in our democratic politics and the nature yeah. of the politics. A lot of the anger that's driving that right now, I would contend, is a result of our failure to develop talent in this society in a way that prepares people for changes, massive changes in our economy and to adapt yes. to that. And so we've got to get better about doing it. And it turns out to be a more complicated job than just the three R's, which is the 19th century conception of school and reading, writing, right. and arithmetic. And we just do that. It's within the four walls and everything else is somebody else's responsibility. Well, in our view, you know, the, the, right now the population in the United States is more than 50% students of color, the school population, mm -hmm. more than 50% low-income youngsters, two groups with which we've historically been unsuccessful. And so we need to do a much better job of developing talent in those populations, or our nation is even more at risk than it was when the 1983 report was written. Right. We won't be able to grow companies and grow jobs because we don't have people who have the high skill, high knowledge that's demanded in the 21st century. In turn, there'll be no place for them in the economy or in the middle class, and they'll then fall into a growing underclass, which will in time become insupportable for our children, right. grandchildren, yeah. and it will bring down the society as a whole. So this is urgent work. So even if you don't come to it through an ethical conviction yes. that we should care about all the children in our society, you'd be compelled to come to it from a practical position of self-interest that we can't be viable as an economy or a democracy 
unless we do a better job of developing talent than we've been able to do so far. Yeah, I love where you're going there too. It, 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 to me, it analogizes a bit to uh, the way people think about climate change, where like we need to take action now to That's right. avert, avert the challenges that we know we're gonna see in 10, 20, 30 years. What you're describing is perhaps an even uh, shorter time frame around the continued broader societal challenges, broader economic and workforce challenges that we're beginning to see now. Those are gonna accelerate in the next say 10, 20 years. And if we're not transforming how we think about, you know, holistic education, the, the fuller context of the community, it takes a village to really educate the, the rising generations. It's a pretty fundamental and dire existential problem that we have to address. But I think people tend to think about it, they tend to think about education as almost an abstracted, like old school problem. And they don't really, they don't seem to connect it, or even I at times don't necessarily connect it to these really profound challenges that we're facing as a culture. Because I think we almost take the existing framework as a given. Well, we do. I mean, I, I, you know, Abraham Lincoln said a long time ago, there's no more important topic in our society than education and how we build our young people. I think it's even more important and more imperative now. And we're dealing with the same challenges that the climate movement that you talked about earlier is dealing with is this lack of a sense of urgency. There is, there's a sense of complacency. That's the big enemy of reform in this area because reform requires change and sacrifice and an element of discomfort accompanies both change and making sacrifices. And, and people are unwilling to do that unless they feel genuinely threatened. And right. it's a little bit like a, you know, the frog boiling in the water slowly doesn't really yep. know the risk, but if you throw him into a pot of boiling water, he'll jump right out because right. You know, it's, it's too hot and it's too sudden to change. So right. our, biggest, our biggest concern is, and, and one of the biggest challenges in doing this work is how do we create a sense of the urgency of this work so that you build the will to care for other people's children in the way that you would want to care for your own children yes. because it's in your self-interest and in the interest of your children in the long run to do so. Right. And, uh, you know, getting those messages out, getting that sense of urgency out, you know, is a tricky job of sort of messaging public will and leadership. Yeah. And frankly, we're in an era now where, you know, if you look at the last two presidential campaigns, because of all the internecine wars we've had within education about things like charter schools and testing and, and standards and, and bilingual education, we, are, we have such wars with ourselves that none of the leading candidates really want to talk about education or children. Right. None of the business leaders who were with us on school reform 30 years ago are in our sector right now because it's too treacherous, it's too vitriolic. So yeah. we've got to work as a sector to bring society back to focusing in, not just on schools and school reform, but on young people and preparing young people for success. Because yeah. school, after all, is an instrument of getting young people to be successful. And what we like to, to say is that we ought to have a set of strategies designed to give everybody the opportunity to be middle class by middle age. Mm. That's what really America ought to be about. Mm -hmm. And that is going to take a more intentional, broader effort than what we're currently doing. Yeah. And, and the urgency, I guess, in the best cases, and I think your book does a nice job of this, can also be paired with hope, right? So there are examples oh, yeah. of successes 
and I'd love to, to maybe give you a chance to talk about an example or two there and maybe flesh out what, what sort of sets us up for success. And then we can maybe begin to move into how can this scale? You know, how can we take these, right. these isolated case studies and rather than uh, them being the exception, how do we pivot to where they can become more the norm? So can you, can you yeah, talk a little right. bit about that? Yeah. Sure. The good news, and that's why we wrote the book really, was to say, you know, this isn't rocket science, what we're talking about. We know how to do the things that we're talking about. Let's start with the upper middle class and above family in our society. We know how to prepare young people for success and what it takes. We also know how to do it in communities that are less fortunate through the accident of birth with a whole variety of programs and opportunities. And we document many of those and just the tip of the iceberg really in our book of places where communities have come together to provide services and supports to young people. It might be as simple as a Facebook page on which you know, advocates for youth and, and youth counselors can post needs that children have, might be a very material need. We document in the book a kid who needed a pair of boots in order to take a construction job and he couldn't take the job unless he found the books, the boots, they put it up on Facebook and sooner or later he had it. It might be more complicated. We document one community there where they, they go to work and provide early childhood education through a bus that goes out into rural areas and provides and brings the education to the students instead of the other way around because the transportation problems are so severe. We yep. document another community in, in, in North Minneapolis where they take a two-generation approach to this work and say, you know, the best thing we can do in terms of helping students to come to school every day is to help the families achieve stability. And by helping the families find jobs and get stable housing, that'll be the best thing we can do to help that child come to school ready to learn. Uh, you know, we work in that way. In our by all means communities that we have at the Education Redesign Lab, we have nine communities where we work in depth. We do things like uh, individual, uh, what we call student success plans, where we have you know the equivalent of a running medical record, but a running educational and success record on each child starting early in childhood that documents what their needs are both inside and outside of school, what their assets and strengths are, and what are the gaps that need to be filled and how adults can come together and fill some of those gaps and track their progress and give educators the opportunity to see a 360 degree portrait of what young people are like. And in our by all means communities, <clears throat> they're working all along that pipeline that I described at different points of entry. In some communities, uh, they're starting with the idea of, you know, making high quality summer enrichment learning available to all students. In Boston, which is not one of our communities, but a, a, a great example of some of this work, we have an organization called Boston After School and Beyond, and they are working at closing the gap for young people to get high quality summer learning. And so it's a very concerted, deliberate effort, has the mayor, has the school superintendent, lots of philanthropies and businesses around the table figuring out how to get that done. In another community, uh, they're working hard on closing the gap in terms of access to early childhood education because they know that makes such a, such a huge difference. We have other communities that are working on mental health issues and making sure that we increase the access 
that young people have to mental health services, since that's the number one complaint we get these days from superintendents is being overwhelmed uh, by the number of mental health and psychological problems that students are bringing into schools. Mm -hmm. So there's a myriad of ways of going at this and all kinds of ways in which communities organize themselves. In our by all means model, we have the mayor convenes a children's cabinet, which brings together all those agencies of government and organizations within the community that work on behalf of young people and bring them to the table to do, you know, first of all, kind of an analysis of the community's strengths and weaknesses in terms of providing for young people, then to set an agenda, to raise resources, to develop a set of strategies, to implement those strategies and begin to, to hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. And so and there are lots of ways of working on this. Again, we know how to do it. The problem is, Mike, we have all these things occurring on islands in isolation around the country. It's not a system. We haven't made a commitment to this as a system. We're kind of doing it piecemeal. And so what we're arguing, what we're trying to prove in these cities, which I think is the key to your second question, which is how you scale it, is we need some proof points around the country. And there are a lot of people, there are other organizations like Strive Together, Harlem Children's Zone, Communities in School, the community schools movement itself is taking off. You go to uh, a number of our communities around the country and they're getting more and more community schools, which are trying to do this on a one school at a time basis, form these partnerships, keep the buildings open till the evening, on weekends, during the summer, things of that nature. So it's it's a question of, again, generating first hope, then urgency, and finally the will you know, to do this at scale, which will take more than just effective coordination. It will ultimately take a deeper investment by society in human talent. Right. But the only way America is going to be competitive in the 21st century is by having a higher level of human talent than other societies have, because automation and low-cost labor is going to win out every time on anything that's that's routine kind of low-skill, low-knowledge labor. Yeah. No, I really like the I like the economic argument in particular. Uh, it reminds me of you know I, I talk about the economic justification for diversity and inclusion. You know, like you make better decisions when you have a diverse group engaging. So like it's not it's not just the noble social good of having a diverse group. It's that having a diverse group weigh in on a decision will actually right. make the make the decision making better. And what you're talking about here is making this investment to address. Uh, the challenges of poverty is not simply, although it's a noble thing, it's not simply to help raise up those families. It's actually to help, you know, address some of the more fundamental challenges we're going to face around, around the transformation that we're going to see in the fourth in- industrial revolution that's that's beginning. I think it's also really interesting context because we talk frequently on the show because we like to to geek out. You know, we talk about robots and AI mm-hmm. and sort of the, the sci-fi element of of what's coming in the future. I really like where you're going, although there is uh, potentially a, a dystopian aspect to it. But like, if we don't shift our thinking, think about resourcing this differently, and think about the the longer term return on those types of strategic investments, we're going to have a real problem on our hands. We're starting to see the beginning of it now, and I really like the tying of education to uh, the longer term challenges we're going to have around jobs and 
sustainable wages and and all these things. I also really like the connection to mayors at the the city level, and it's almost like we've we've sort of raised out of the classroom individual family student context to say maybe the le the level up of the mayor gives you the right level of local attention. But I, if I'm hearing you right, the challenge is also that beyond the local level, there's not a, a more structured way to kind of get federal attention to focus on these problems. Yeah, but I, I think the at the local level, and it's another reason for using mayors, mayors can be very effective advocates for this kind of work. But first, you know, the first step is we've got to we're going to make it happen. We're going to make it successful at the local level. Right. Mayors have the influence to call everybody to the table. By also by picking mayors, we're saying this is more than just school work. Schools have the work they need to do. We've already overtaxed them as policymakers mm -hmm. with things that they need to accomplish. World class standards where it used to be uh, possible to get by with a bell curve distribution over a very low center. We want them to do personalized education and social and emotional learning and 21st century skills and a well-rounded curriculum and driver education and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And it all fitting in the same box we had 100 years ago. It doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. So for us to say, now on top of that, you're going to take care of all these other outside issues. It's just unrealistic. Right. So this has got to be civic business. Right. And the mayors are well positioned to do that and the influence to call people to the table and create a sense of urgency. They're also well positioned if this work is successful and when it's successful to say, we need help. We can't do this all on our own. Yep. You know, the whole question of getting health care for everybody seems basic, but we've got to go to work on, you know, what are, what are, what's our policy with respect to Medicaid and how does Medicaid make it possible for schools uh, or families to get the services for kids that they need to come to school healthy without being right. under the toxic stress of having mm. untreated dental or physical health problems. Mm. Same thing applies to mental health issues. Same thing applies to nutritional issues. You know, in many of our schools in poor neighborhoods, we have teachers on a volunteer basis, often using their own money, filling backpacks of food to mm. send home to ki kids and their families over the weekend so that they can eat and so that they can come to school more ready to learn on Monday morning. Well, really, uh, that's something we need to do, but it's a classic case of treating the symptom. Mm -hmm. And we need to exercise some political muscle in terms of changing the conversation about hunger and food deserts. And why do we have you know, kids going hungry and needing backpacks in the first place? We right. need to do something about that from a policy standpoint. And that will take action on the state level and on the federal level. And it's what I mean about the sense of urgency here. We have to, we, we do have to attack childhood poverty. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. We can't hold our breath on our expectations for young people in schools to when we eliminate poverty, because that's a long-term generational kind of thing. Right. But we've got to be able to do both things at once. We've got to deal with the symptoms of what we currently have, but we've got to deal with the policy and the framework in which all of this exists. Yeah, it makes makes a ton of sense. We're getting close to time. I think I have a right. question, and then I wanna I wanna get your parting thoughts. But uh, but the last question that I have before your parting thoughts is: How do you build the trust with the educators themselves, uh, who historically have been, you know, on, on their own, you know, filling up those those backpacks with food, but right. also having a sense of this is my class, I'm in charge. I, like I I'm out the buck stops with me. I imagine right. there's a lot of building of trust that has to happen 
between the educator and the broader community so that for it to really work right? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, you know, for the most part, Mike, you know, we find educators really welcome this work because every educator realizes I can't deal with students who don't show up in the first place. Right. And yet I don't have the capacity to do much about that. That's beyond my range. But I need help with mitigating those problems that are getting in the way. Right. Or I can't, you know, I know I'm not going to be able to learn to, to teach a child who's got, you know, a chronic toothache that is unattended and again needs to be treated but i'm not a dentist and that's not my you know or a kid who's moving every month the superintendent knows they're shifting from school to school or school system to school system and you can't get traction and learning so for most educators they're saying if you're bringing together you know various forces in our community to address some of these issues that are getting in the way of our kids coming to school or being ready to learn, uh, that's uh, mana from heaven as far as we're concerned. That's going to help us do our work more efficiently and effectively. Because we care about kids, that's why we came into the profession. We see that they're hurting. There's a great deal of pain in our communities. Yeah. We can't really mitigate it. We're, you know, we're forced to stick to the curriculum and bear down on instruction. Right. But we know that there are all these things that are getting in the way. We need help. You know, and so yeah. that's that's what we're we're trying to do. We have kids going homeless. We have an enormous homeless population in the schools. Yeah. And the teachers know while a kid is laboring under the toxic stress of being homeless, there's no hope of teaching that child anything. Right. So somebody has to solve that. And the average teacher doesn't know the first thing about solving that. And that's not in their job description anyway. But right. it needs to be attended to. So right. in, in, on the whole, educators welcome this kind of support and opportunity for kids because it shows up back in school and it helps yeah. them do their work. That's great. Yeah. And one of the things we've talked about is how, you know, activating grassroots activity at the at the teacher level is also always an interesting concept. And if they understand that these types of opportunities are out there, in some ways it's a communication problem. You know, just students who teachers who are not getting this type of support may not have hope that they ever will. But at the same time, there, there are rising expectations. Now, if you look at a lot of these teacher strikes that have been happening around the country, yeah. on issues of, you know, you know, starting with issues of salary, but you often find in the subtext, for example, in a place like Chicago, mm -hmm. they're looking for more counselors, more school psychologists, more mm -hmm. social workers dealing with the issues. They're looking for more community schools. We have a, we have a number of our teachers unions across the country pushing for community schools. We have a chapter in our book about community schools. So I think teachers are onto this. They're saying we can't do our work, nor should you hold us accountable for everything that's happening in the ecosystem when we only have this tiny piece of it. All the rest of this needs to be addressed. We're willing to help and coordinate and curate and you know assist families in taking advantage of this, but somehow society as a whole has got to make this kind of support available. Makes a ton of sense. Uh, really fascinating stuff. We could go on and on, but we're getting close to time. I usually like to close by asking our guests, uh, what trends outside of what we talked about are you seeing in say the next five to 10 years that you think are, are relevant to the future of learning and education? What have we not discussed so far that you, you wanna share out as parting thoughts to folks who are trying to see what's on the horizon say in the next, as we head into the 2020s? Well, what, what I worry about, at the, and the, starting on that side of things, what I worry about is, you know, continuing hollowing out of the middle class, 
you know, continuing growth in the proportion of inequality that exists in our society and a growing underclass which doesn't have access to high quality learning opportunities. I mean, I, I really worry about that. And, and I worry about the political divisions that exist within our society and the acrimony in our civil discourse. And, and you know, in our divisions between urban and rural and coastal and, and the heart of America and so on and so forth. I mean, those, those are concerns that I have. You know, and, I, and at the same time, I, I know that what's happening, you know, particularly in some of the technological spheres that you're talking about, is the entry requirements for getting into high skill, high knowledge, remunerative work are getting higher and higher. And, uh, and there are more and more gaps in our preparation system in terms of getting people ready to do those jobs. Mm-hmm. So on the hopeful side, you know, I think there are opportunities. I, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're kind of getting isolated as an education sector for the reasons I mentioned earlier because of all of our challenges and, and arguments and controversies. But on the other hand, there's an opportunity for a new vision of what it takes to come into, you know, to come into the center of the discourse. There's an opportunity to bring our corporate allies back because our corporate allies are still very interested in human capital and filling those jobs mm-hmm. and connecting with the system that, that uh, prepares young people for employment. Mm-hmm. And so I think we've got some real opportunities there. I think technology presents both opportunities and pitfalls in terms of, you know, making it possible to um, extend the boundaries of the traditional schoolhouse or extend the hours of traditional schooling time. But doing that in a way that doesn't further advantage the advantage while further disadvantaging the disadvantage, uh, I think is a challenge that we'll have Mm -hmm. to address. But obviously, technology and AI and so forth are going to play a, a more and more important role in our lives without taking over our lives, one hopes. And, and so we've got to figure out how to use technology as an effective tool in, in education as well as in employment. So lots of things going on, but I, I do think there's a, there's a, I'm hopeful that there's a rising consciousness and belief in the kind of concepts that we're um, promoting in this book, the kind of notion that uh, all means all, and that's in our national interest to um, get behind that kind of a, a perspective and that we've got the strategies to do it, which makes it hopeful, and we've got to work on developing the will to make it possible. Fantastic stuff. Dr. Paul Revell of the Harvard Graduate School of Ed, also the, the founder of the Education Redesign Lab, and one of the authors, Broader, Bolder, Better, an amazing conversation. Really very deeply appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. If folks want to learn more about this, we talked about the, the book and, and your, your foundation. Any, any other recommendations if folks want to learn more? Well, the Ed more? Redesign Lab is at edredesign.org. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's something to have a look at. And, and then I just think there's a lot of good work in local communities. So I'd encourage people to look in their local communities about people who are addressing some of the challenges that we've been discussing today. Excellent. Thanks again to to Paul for the time. And thanks again to our listeners for listening. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education.